0: I'll invite you, if you'd like to have your Bibles, um, turn to Revelation. This morning, uh, we're doing what, what is customary for me to do at the beginning of every series. Uh, we, it's been a bit of a journey as we've been walking through the foundation of interpretation leading up to where we are today, giving you the big picture over the last couple of weeks of what God says as far as His plan for the Gentile nations, then His plan for Israel, Um, This morning, I'm doing what we call a book sermon. At the beginning of each series, I walk through the entire book in one sermon, telling you of the contents of the book. And this because we start digging in, and as we dig in, sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees, right? We can be so busy looking at all of the individual things that we forget the broad scope of what's happening in the book and it's really easy to forget the broad scope of what's happening in the book if you don't know the broad scope of the book and you don't know where it's going and what it's about and so today is about walking through the book chapter by chapter and letting you know what the book is about now every time i preach one of these i couple it with an outline and those outlines are on the back table um, it's It's an outline you don't have to have with you right now um, in order to understand the sermon however it's uh, an outline that I give at the beginning of each book. you can take it, you can put it in a folder um, and if you've done so since the beginning of of my ministry here, then you have 20-something outlines, I guess. Um, my, I guess my wife has them if you'd like one. Uh, you, can, you can put your hand up as she comes by, and she'll get one for you. And it's effectively just an outline that I've put together of the book. On the last page, you'll find a, a chart. And that chart, uh, I, it's not a chart that I made, but it's used with permission. It's a good chart that kind of tells you um, the, the general outline of the book of Revelation and of how those things play out. It gives you um, uh, chapter references and other verse references along with it. And I've found that to be very helpful. You'll see that up on the screen today as well, as I'll, I'll be cutting to various elements of that chart um, throughout the course of the sermon to show you what we're dealing with here. Uh, and, And I have put some of those outlines on the website for the books that I've preached. I need to get that up to speed and get the rest of them up there, and I'll be doing that Lord willing sooner than later, and then this outline will be there, and you can have all of those outlines if you would like them. The revelation of Jesus Christ, our final message before we begin to exposit the book. Now, that will not take place next week. Next week and the week after, we'll be focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming into Resurrection Sunday in, in two weeks. Uh, however, uh, this, this is the last message, and then following that, we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1, in three weeks. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the big picture in Daniel, events as they take place. We'll give the general overview of the book itself this week in order that we would not get too lost and that we'd know where we're going as we're walking through the book. Help us organize our thoughts. The events that we follow, as we follow them today, as we'll walk through them today, are all going to be events that are laid in place based upon the methods of interpretation that that I've presented to you over the last several weeks. And as we step into... Chapter 1, verse 1. We see the Bible tell us the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him, to show unto His servants the things which must shortly come to pass. We see a purpose statement there. That the book is intended to show us the things that will come to pass. We'll talk about that more uh, in a couple of weeks. The text tells us that John was on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day. In the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Scriptures tell us. When he saw this particular vision. While in the Spirit on the Lord's day, Jesus tells us that he heard a great voice which initiates the body of truth which we understand to be the visions of future things. Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the Spirit... On the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And we'll see a, a message that is given to him that begins with the things that were, that's what he's speaking of now, then the things that are, the things that are right now, and then the things that are to come. John's first message is to the seven ministers of the seven churches, of seven churches found in regions throughout. Asia, where Paul had planted churches. These messages speak to the spirit of the church age with warnings, with commendations, and with blessings. So there are seven churches that um, John is writing to. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Again, we'll talk about those more in the weeks to come as we dig deeply into the text. Each church, however, had very distinct characteristics which God commends with the notable exception of Laodicea, where God gives absolutely no commendation to that church at all. He gives them no commendation. Each church also has distinct characteristics, which God rebukes with the notable exceptions of the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia, each of which get only commendations. They have no rebukes against them to each church that had error. God called them to repent And the Bible says that if you do not repent, that he would remove their testimony from the world, that he would remove their effectiveness from their world and their society. And for each church which overcame, God promised tremendous blessing and joy and a reward in the life to come. So in chapters 2 and 3, we have this These seven churches, God speaking to these seven churches, commending these seven churches for what they do well, rebuking these seven churches for what they failed to do well, and giving them promises of blessing to those who overcome. Now, beginning in chapter 4 of Revelation of Jesus Christ, we go from that which is to that which is to come, and that's the general outline of the book, and you'll see that in the outline if you study it later, the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come uh, begins in chapter 4, and we talked last week about God's purpose for Israel, and we would recognize, we would believe that this is the time, this is the time of the 70th week of Daniel, this is the time where God does those six things that He said he needed to do, finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make a reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Particularly chapters 4 through 20 are those seven uh, years of tribulation, the 70th week of Israel from Daniel chapter 9. This is the final seven years of God's program, and these years will fulfill the entirety of uh, it will be fulfilled in its entirety uh, uh, During those, those seven days Excuse me. All of this will be fulfilled in its entirety All of God's promises All of what he wanted to see accomplished Will be fulfilled in its entirety In that 70th week and then after So we recognize in our studies of the church On the kingdom, on dispensationalism That the church is something very unique in character The church is very unique in character I hope that's fairly readable for you And as you look at that chart that you have before you, or or you can look at the chart certainly on the screen, when we studied the kingdoms, we recognized how the church is the only dispensation where, where the body of believers in any given age is already victorious. In the time of Israel in the time of Abraham in the time of Adam and Eve and, and, and the, the, the patriarchs of that day and the days of Noah, we see with each dispensation there was a, an element of revelation and then as that revelation was given, uh, the people of that age failed to live up to the, the standard of that revelation and then it ended in apostasy and judgment. And unlike those days, the days of Noah or the days of Babel or the patriarchs of the law, all of which ended, as I mentioned, in the terrible failure of mankind to follow God's word and a dramatic threat against God's kingdom program, which demanded God's intervention, the church is not like that. The church is already victorious. The battle, the victory, is already won. Jesus Christ has already risen from the dead. Satan's head has already been crushed. The church is not God's elect unto the bearing of Messiah as Israel was, and as all of the faithful in the dispensations previous. Rather, the church is God's elect to demonstrate the victory of Messiah. The church is already victorious. The church is the trophy of God's grace, the trophy of God's victory over a defeated foe. And at the end of this time, of the church and of the Gentile world, God will recommence his plan with Israel. God will reinitiate those 70 weeks, as we talked about last week. To this end, we would recognize that the church has no purpose in the tribulation. To this end, we would recognize that the church is not a body that needs to be chastened back to God, as Israel is. And to this end, we would also recognize that the church is not a body that needs to be judged for their sin, as as the unbelieving world is. And this is a partial part of the reason why we recognize the rapture of the church, uh, that which is, is taught in the Word of God to take place prior to the tribulation period. Because the tribulation period, in essence, quality and character, is entirely foreign to what God is and has done through the church and the very essence of who, God, uh, of, of who we are in Christ. We'll talk more about that, of course, when we get there, uh, and I preach uh, at least one message, if not two, on the rapture and why we believe what we believe about it, and we'll talk about all of the different possibilities and, and why we stand where we stand on this. So we believe the church we raptured out just prior to the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, and we would see this more most effectively between chapter um, 3 in chapter 4 in Revelation. Uh, starting from chapter 4 on, we never see God mention His church. We see God mention His saints and that should be no surprise because Daniel 7 is filled with mentions of the faithful among Daniel's people as being the saints of the Most High. So the idea of there being saints would not surprise us, the, that people are still being saved, that people are are coming to the knowledge of the truth, that's all there. But what we do not see throughout the rest of the book of the Revelation, at least on earth, is any mention of the church. We only see that in chapters 2 and 3. So Revelation 4 begins with a vision in the heavens before the throne of God. There we find 24 elders sitting upon 24 seats before the throne of God, and among them there are four beasts crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come they cry and they declare God's worthiness so in chapter 4 it sets the tone for the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ the tone the book is intended to reflect the inevitable glory honor worth and victory that will come to the God of heaven as he fulfills his plan on the earth chastening and redeeming Israel unto himself saving all those that will be saved and judging the world in justice And in judgment. And this glory comes through one particular person called in chapter 5, the Lamb. We see a controversy in chapter 5 surrounding the opening of a book with seven seals which we will later find out to contain judgments against the unbelieving world. Uh, It's called a book here. We might think of it as a scroll. And if you've ever gotten an envelope, it's kind of out of vogue today, but if you've ever gotten an envelope where someone has actually taken wax and they've melted that wax and then maybe put a seal on that and the envelope is sealed with wax, that's a seal. That's an envelope seal. This scroll that, that John sees, this book that John sees has seven seals. And those seven seals are are at various points causing it to where you have to break the seal in order to open the book or open the scroll. And the question, the controversy is, who is worthy to open the book? Because as they look around, they say there's no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, that is able to open the book or even to look upon the book filled with the judgments of God for the end of the world. John says he wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book. But then the elders, the 24 seated before God's throne, cry out in Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits sent forth into all the earth. And the picture here is amazing because they call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John looks at him, he says it is as if he was a lamb that was slain, linking him, of course, to John's declaration on the day of Jesus' baptism, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This lion of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, is the lamb that had been slain. He came the first time in humility to be slain. He comes the second time as a lion to make war. The Bible says he has seven horns. We've seen all throughout our study over the past many weeks that horns uh, speak of power. They speak of might. They speak of Kingdoms. Seven being that number of perfection. We'll talk about that quite a bit over the next several weeks. He has seven eyes. So not just the perfection of his power in that he has seven horns, but the perfection of his knowledge in that he sees all, that he knows all and that he has seven eyes. And so the lamb is declared worthy to open the seals of the book. And so he begins to open those seals. And with each seal that is opened... With each time that a portion of this book is opened by the seal being released, there is a judgment that takes place upon the earth. These seals comprise what we would believe to be, in general, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Within this time, there will be a peace covenant, the Bible tells us, between Israel and Antichrist. And they will have the freedom to make sacrifices in the temple, which once again will be built. Antichrist will have negotiated a peace treaty. Israel will be at peace with the world. Seems amazing today to think of that with everything going on in the Middle East today. But indeed, the scriptures tell us it is the case. And so we learn of these seven seals from Revelation chapters 6 and 7. The first seal is open, the Bible tells us, and John sees a white horse. And that horse has a man on it conquering. The second seal is opened and John sees a red horse with a man upon it who removes peace from the earth. Among these two horses we understand these years, though they are years of peace between Israel and the world, though there's this treaty in Israel, they will be years of great war and contention. They will be years... Uh, where, where there is, is a, a lack of general peace around the world. Compounding these problems are the next two seals. The third seal is opened, and John sees a black horse with a man riding upon it, and that horse brings with it scarcity of food, famine. Necessary food prices will skyrocket and be comparable to luxury food prices. Uh, food will become extremely expensive, and, and, and there will be scarcity. When the fourth seal is opened, John then sees a pale horse and as John looks at this pale horse, he will see upon the earth death and war and hunger. The first four seals are opened and we recognize that this time, though it will be a time where there's dramatic changes economically and spiritually in the world, though Israel will no longer have to fear the way that that it's had to fear characteristically throughout this time, uh, throughout history really, uh, there will be tremendous problems upon the earth. Still within chapter 6, the fifth seal is opened. And as John describes the cry, as as the sixth seal is opened, John describes the martyrs, the cry of the martyrs slain for the word of God. We read this in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. There's comfort in these words. And yet, yeah, also a recognition that throughout this time will be tremendous martyrdom. We'll see as we study through the book that, in fact, the Bible says there will be martyrs from every race, every tongue, every nation during this time. Those that claim the name of Christ will suffer for their claim. And yet, these words also remind us that vengeance is coming that God will avenge the sixth seal is opened and we read of many wonders first a natural disaster seemingly one great event the Bible says that there will be a great earthquake that the sun will be blackened that the moon will become his blood that the stars of heaven will fall to the earth that mountains will fall and islands will be moved out of their place Consider an earthquake so strong that mountains actually collapse and that, that, that islands fall into the sea and that islands shift in their topography. So great is this event that at the end of the chapter we read this in, chap- in verses 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? We find here for the first time within the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ that the earth is fully aware of what's going on here. That it's not as if they just say, oh, well, I wonder why this is happening. They know why this is happening. They know what's going on here. They are actually cognizant of the fact that there is one sitting upon the throne that is angry at the earth. And we'll see this come up again and again and again. They recognize this to be divine judgment. It will not, however, change their minds. Startling though that may be, it will not change their minds. It will harden them instead in their rebellion. In chapter 7, we remain in the time of the sixth seal, wherein is described as spiritual workings. The Bible tells us that God seals 144,000 people of the tribes of Israel. The concept of sealing is not foreign to us as believers. We indeed as well are those that are said to be sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. The idea that there is a, a mark placed upon us, not visible but divine, that, that shows that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us, and that gives us the confidence to know that we are, that, that we are one of, of, of God's children. We can expect a similar sealing to take place in this day, That these 144,000 are saved, placing their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and become God's emissaries to the world in this age. Like any believer, this ceiling is not visible, but nonetheless evident, and these 144,000 will travel the earth, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. John then sees a great multitude, the Bible says, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and tongues before the throne. Martyrs for the faith, crying out for joy, extolling... The salvation of God. And as John asks about these many, he is told that they are the great multitudes that came out of the great tribulation, martyrs of a culture which will grow ever more hostile to the things of Christ as we get closer and closer to the end. And this ushers in the opening of the seventh seal of the scroll. And the Bible says that when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in the heavens. Now, as it relates to the seventh seal as well as later the seventh trumpet, the content of the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. If you've ever seen one of those Russian nesting dolls where you've got the doll and then you pop off the head of the doll and inside's another doll and you pull that one out and you pop off the head of that one and inside's another doll, it's kind of like that that when that seventh seal is opened, what's inside are seven trumpets. And so the seventh seal is actually the seven trump, or excuse me, yeah, the seven trumpets. And then when the seventh trumpet sounds, the seventh trumpet contains seven bowls or vials that will be poured out upon the earth. I hope that makes sense. So the first trumpet sounds and John sees what is described as hail and fire mingled with blood. And this is where we begin to really see devastation and destruction begin to take place upon the earth. The Bible says in this event that one third of the trees are burned up and all the grass. So there's a tremendous amount of, of fire raging. Trees are burned. The grass is burned. Of course, that will have a noticeable effect on the environment as our trees are very important to us for um, the process of creating oxygen and such. The second trumpet sounds and John sees what is described as a great mountain burning with fire cast into the sea. In this event, one-third of the sea becomes as blood. One-third of the creatures in the sea die. One-third of the ships are destroyed you can imagine the tremendous impact that these will have upon the world, upon its economy, upon uh, the the amount of food, and we've talked about scarcity, if a third of the creatures die, on the capacity to ship as a third of the ships are destroyed. The third trumpet sounds and John sees a great star fall from heaven, burning as a lamp which falls into the rivers and fountains. John calls this star wormwood. Wormwood is a plant with a terribly bitter taste that causes illness. Whereas the first wonder touches the ocean, taints the ocean so that the creatures die, this one will taint the fresh water supply, will cause the fresh water to turn bitter and poisonous, will spoil the fresh water supply, poisoning it. Many will die because they'll drink of the poisoned waters, the scriptures tell us. The fourth trumpet sounds and John sees the lights of the sky dim. Unlike a complete darkening, in this case it would seem as though the power of the sun is turned down, as it were, so that the, it's turned down, it's dimmed by a third, uh, almost like uh, uh, an, an adjustable light, you just dim it a little bit, the sun will be dimmed, and again, this will affect everything, it will affect every element of how the earth functions. So, we're seeing these natural disasters take place, and it's bringing about famine, it's bringing about uncertainty, and it's bringing about all of these things as these natural disasters take place. To this end, John hears the angels cry. The Bible says, I beheld, Revelation 8 13, and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet. Of the three angels which are yet to sound. Four have sounded, three are yet to sound, and these, wo- these these trumpets are what we call the woe judgments. As the angel proclaimed, three woes upon the earth. And the fifth trumpet is the first of these three what we call woe, judgments, and it's described in chapters 9 through 11. And what John sees here is an angel, and he falls from heaven to earth, having the key, the Bible says, to the bottomless pit. Uh, The bottomless pit is described in several instances in the New Testament as a place where disobedient angels were kept in chains awaiting the time of judgment. This angel opens the bottomless pit, and the Bible says smoke arises from it as a great furnace. From the pit comes horrible beasts. That John describes as locusts, but these locusts have a sting as the sting of a scorpion. And they're commanded not to harm the vegetation. Typically, a locust would go in and would harm the vegetation. It would come in and it would eat up all the crops. But uh, this, these locusts, beast things, are commanded not to touch the vegetation, but rather they are commanded to torment all of those among mankind who do not have um, the, the, the sign of God, who are not believers, who are not sealed with the seal of God. And they do this, and they torment humanity for five months. And the Bible says that men will seek death in these days, but will not be able to find it. John describes the king of these demons as being an angel of the bottomless pit, called Apollyon in the Greek, Abaddon in the Hebrew, a name that means... The destroyer. The second woe is the sixth trumpet. John hears a voice commanded. Uh, commanding 4 angels that are bound in the river Euphrates, the Bible says, to be loosed. And this is a preparation for an hour that is not yet to come. This is a preparation for what we call Armageddon. Uh, John then sees an army of 200 million horsemen in number, which will destroy one-third of the men upon the earth. We don't know if this is a uh, physical army or if this is a, a spiritual army, as it were, perhaps these locusts uh, or, or an army of such, or whether it's, it's a physical, we'll, we'll talk about that more as we we get there uh, and dig into that when, when we get there at the time. As with the end of the sixth seal, so too at the end of the sixth judgment, that God gives us a glimpse into the hearts of men and women upon the earth who are being ravaged by the judgments of God. Remember, we talked about how at at the end of the, that sixth um, seal. They hid in the caves and they said, fall on us, hide us from the lamb that is on the throne. They knew the lamb was on the throne, but they wanted to run rather than uh, wanting to uh, repent. And here we see a similar response in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. Still within the context of the sixth trumpet, John sees a mighty angel come down from heaven with a little book in his hand. So here it is, and these men, knowing the judgment of God, refuse to repent. They refuse to repent of their evil ways, and the Bible says now uh, an angel comes from heaven with a little book in his hand, and this angel stands over the earth, the Bible says, and John is commanded to eat the little book. This is something that we find in Ezekiel as well, the concept of eating the little book, and it was, as the Bible tells us, sweet in John's mouth. But then, as he chewed it and swallowed it, it was bitter in his belly. This the same allusion is used elsewhere, describing judgment that to the believer as we see the judgment of the unbelieving world as we see the judgment of those who have wronged us and who have martyred our brethren for generations it's sweet in our mouths as we think of uh, those today who are evil and wicked and we know that judgment is coming and we consume that judgment we think of that judgment it's sweet in our mouths but as we think on it more as we consider it more as we meditate upon it more it becomes bitter in our bellies because we know that we too are sinners. And we know that it is not for anything that we have done that we will one day stand in glory. And we know that it is only because of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could wish that even those, even those our enemies that we pray for, and, uh, that we bless, that even those our enemies might be able to come to a knowledge of the truth and uh, avert the, the judgment that is to come. In other words when we truly consume judgment and recognize it for what it is, we would not wish it on our worst enemy. It's bitter in our bellies. And that's the idea as he consumes this book. We also see in this time two witnesses whom John describes as being given the commission to prophesy to the world for 1,260 days, three and a half years as we talked about before. They will be supernaturally invulnerable for the time of their ministry, unable to be harmed by man or by device. And after this span of three and a half years, one called the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit, we'll talk more about that later, will war against and destroy these two witnesses. So happy. Will the people of the earth be that these witnesses have been destroyed? Remember, uh, as as we read here in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, these people are rebellious. They are not repenting. These two witnesses, they're witnesses of God. They're preaching the gospel and people want them killed. People want them silenced. People want them destroyed. And so when the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, destroys them, there will be uh, a worldwide rejoicing. The Bible says the whole world will see them lying dead, that they will give gifts one to another. Literally, they will... Declare a holiday, the day that these two witnesses were destroyed, and they'll let them lie in the street for three days, the Bible tells us. After three days, the Bible says that these three witnesses will be raised from the dead. They will ascend into heaven as their enemies watch on. At the same moment, an earthquake will cause one-tenth of the city. Uh, we'll find out later that that city is Jerusalem. One-tenth of that city will fall. 7,000 men will be killed, and the remaining will be terrified of the wrath of God that is to come. So ends the second woe. The third woe, as with the the sixth seal giving way to the seven trumpets, or uh, um, yes, the seven trumpets, so too now the seventh seal, trumpet and the third woe is or will give way to the seven vials of God's wrath and we'll come to those in a moment they're not immediately next in the chain of events Uh, in chapters 12 and 13 uh, John describes great wonders that he sees in heaven and in earth John first sees a woman a woman clothed in splendor that gives birth to a child Second, uh, John sees a dragon stand before the woman eager to devour the child which is born. John sees the woman bear a man-child who is set to rule all nations. This would be a vision of Israel bringing about the Messiah. The woman is Israel. Messiah is the man-child. The dragon is Satan ready to destroy him. But the child before the dragon could devour him is caught up unto God, the Bible says, and so the dragon turns his wrath upon the woman. John then sees this woman flee into the wilderness to be protected by God. And he sees a battle in the heavens between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. So we have Michael, the archangel, and the other angels on one side fighting Satan and his, and, uh, his demonic hosts on the other side. And at the end of this battle, the Bible says the dragon and his angels are cast out of heaven for good And never again able to return. To this end, the dragon will recognize that time is short and he will pour out all of his indignation, the Bible says, upon the seed of the woman. This would be the individuals that comprise the nation of Israel. And we believe this would usher in that second three and a half years of tribulation, a time called in the Bible the time of Jacob's trouble. And indeed it shall be. But we're not finished with John's exploration of some of the characters within this Revelation narrative. We're introduced in chapter 13 to two beasts. The first beast, the Bible says, will come out of the Gentile world. He will be Antichrist. He will war with the saints. He will cause the earth to worship him and indeed the earth will worship him. The second beast will likely come out of the nation of Israel. Uh, We take this because the first beast is described as coming out of the sea and the second beast from the land and generally in prophecy the sea is the Gentile world and the land is Israel. We'll talk about other views when we get there as to what this might be. This beast is called the false prophet. He will do great wonders in the name of Antichrist. He will encourage those that are upon the Earth to worship Antichrist, and as we see these two characters uh, find form, we recognize that there is an unholy Trinity. We talked several uh, weeks ago now about the kingdom conflict, about Satan and his kingdom versus God and His kingdom, and Satan attempting to construct a counterfeit kingdom, and a part of that will be a counterfeit Trinity. That as we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the Father being the will, the Son being the enactor, and the Spirit being the of the Godhead, so too we will see Satan as the will, the Antichrist as the person, and the false prophet as the empowerer of this unholy, evil, wicked, demonic trinity. At this time, the Bible says, this false prophet will compel people to take a mark Called the mark of the beast, with which they may not buy or sell, without which, excuse me, they may not buy or sell. It will be a mark of worship to Satan. It will be a mark of loyalty to the kingdom of Satan. It will also be required to function in society. Now the final topic before we consider the seven vial judgments is a reconsideration of those 144,000 that were saved earlier on in the tribulation as we read it. These had been protected for a time, likely the same amount of time as the two witnesses. Yet in chapter 14 we find this, these 144,000 in heaven as martyrs. John sees three angels in the heavenlies. The first angel was sent throughout the world to preach the gospel to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And so we see through this that God's mercy endures even in this time of judgment. The second angel was sent to declare doom upon Babylon, what we would understand to be the world capital, the center of economic and religious life among the people united against God, going all the way back to the days of the tower of Babel and Nimrod's rebellion. The third angel was sent to pronounce doom upon the unbelieving world upon those who love Satan and his kingdom above God and his kingdom John describes a reaping of the unbelieving world a great death upon them in this we see almost three phases phases that we might recognize to be the first middle and end of the tribulation again we'll talk about whether that's valid or not uh, and why why we might see that or not as we get there the first being The preaching of the everlasting gospel to all nations, the middle being the doom of Babylon, and the end being the destruction of the world. So this leads us to the final set of judgment, the last plagues, the seven golden vials of wrath in chapter 16. The first vial, or bowl, is poured out upon the earth, and men with the mark of the beast are plagued by a terrible sore the second vial is poured out upon the sea and the sea is turned to blood and every living thing dies in the sea the third vial is poured out upon the earth and the rivers and fountains become blood again spoiling now the natural water sources the ones with which people would drink or from which people would drink fourth vial is poured out upon the earth and the sun is turned hotter and men are scorched so whereas before the sun was dimmed by a third now it's turned up it's made hotter and so men are now being scorched in the great heat of the sun, and at this point, you would say, Surely they will repent. Surely, after all of these judgments, they will repent. Absolutely not. So, we read in Revelation 16, verse 9 and the men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. The fifth vial is poured out upon the earth, and the kingdom of the beasts the specific realm over which Antichrist rules is blanketed in total darkness. This is a darkness that you can feel. Men will gnash because of the darkness, kind of like that solitary confinement darkness, that thick darkness. You can't even gain any sort of, sort of uh, bearings because the, your eyes need light to be able to see. Uh, well, my eyes adjust in the dark, but it only adjusts to the extent that your eye can then bring in more light. If there is zero light, then no matter how much your eyes adjust, you can see nothing. You have no bearings, and it is a miserable, it's torment. And that's the darkness that will fall over Antichrist, the beast's kingdom here. And again, we read at the end of that judgment in verse 11 of Revelation 16, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. These people will not repent. And this is the legacy of unbelief. It doesn't matter how much you see. It doesn't matter how much you know. It's about belief. There are people that know, there are people that see, there are people that get it, but they will never exercise themselves unto it. They have hardened their hearts against it. This is the legacy of unbelief. The sixth angel pours out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Recall those four angels who had been loosed? At this time the river is dried up so that the kings of the east might come to the day of Armageddon. John also sees three unclean spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the beast and out of the false prophet. And these lead the earth into the valley of Megiddo, the northwestern part of Israel. The seventh vial is poured out into the air and John hears a voice that says, it is done. Then the Bible says there is an earthquake unlike any that has ever been upon the earth. We've already talked about a couple of earthquakes. One of those earthquakes moved islands on their foundations and some mountains collapsed. This earthquake, the Bible says that Babylon will be divided and be destroyed. Well, islands will literally just sink into the sea. They'll be swallowed up. Mountains will fall. Hail falls from heaven upon men. The end has come. In chapters 17 and 18, we read of the fall of Babylon, the economic and spiritual center of the world, united in rebellion against God. The city is described in the Bible as the great whore, the one who is unfaithful to God and who leads the charge to be unfaithful to God. She's described as a woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Chapter 18 describes the destruction of the great city. The world will lament the destruction of this symbol of their power as well as the economic uh, devastation that will come because it was the source of their riches and their wealth. And so, almost as an obituary to that city, the Bible tells us in Revelation 18, verses 23 and 24, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So will be destroyed. Babylon. Revelation 19 describes Jesus' second coming proper. It's filled with praises as the heavens open. And Jesus of Nazareth comes on a white horse to make war against his enemies. The armies of the world who have gathered together at Megiddo are destroyed. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. And they become the first inhabitants of the lake of fire. The unbelieving world will remain in that waiting place that we call hell until the end of the millennial kingdom. Satan will be bound for that time. But the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown now alive into the lake of fire where they will burn for eternity. The whole of the unbelieving world is destroyed. And the remnant of the faithful, those who believe the Lord and were not yet martyred, who are yet mortals, will enter into Christ's earthly kingdom as mortals. And Revelation chapter 20 describes this earthly kingdom. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. He's cast into the bottomless pit. He's unable to deceive the nations. The saints of Israel are raised from the dead before the millennial kingdom to join the kingdom uh, to to reign with their Lord. The unbelieving dead will remain in hell, as I mentioned, for those 1,000 years. And Jesus will rule upon the throne of David for 1,000 literal years. At the end of this 1,000-year reign, Satan will be loosed for a time, the Bible says, to deceive the nations. We'll talk about why. We've already mentioned it several times. And indeed, these nations will be deceived. As many as the sand of sea in number, the Bible reads. But then we read in Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. And they went up upon the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. We then read of a great white throne of judgment. So now Satan is in the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire and God sits upon a throne judging the unbelieving world. The book of life will be open and all that will be judged on that day, uh, the others, uh, the believing world having ruled and reigned with Christ, having already been judged and found faithful, the unbelieving world will be judged and found guilty. Their names are not written in the book of life, so they will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation 21 describes the new heaven and the new earth. New Jerusalem descends from heaven, a city of beauty and of safety, fitted for a time of perfect joy and peace. This description continues through Revelation 22, verse 5. And of this time we read in 22, verses 3 through 5. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. There will be no sun in that place for indeed Jesus Christ will be the light. And we will serve Him and we will reign with Him forever and ever. To those who have read, to those who have heard, the call is an appeal to obey, to keep the words that were written to keep the words of this prophecy. Remember, that's how we began today, recognizing that Revelation is not just a book of information. It's a book that points us to obedience. How can we obey things that are yet future? How can we align ourselves with something that is yet future? This question reminds us that the purpose of the book is not to tell us the future, but to compel us unto action today. And this too will be our application today. Just in brief. Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The point of this book, brethren, is not doom. The point of this book is escape. The point of the book is not to emphasize those that die, but rather to emphasize those that can live. So the text continues. Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 to 17. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root. And the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say come and let him that heareth say come and let him that is athirst come and whosoever will let him take of the waters of life freely. This book is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what Jesus Christ is about, he is our sacrifice made for our sins. He is our coming conquering King. He is the embodiment of God's justice and mercy. He is the Word of God. He is the one whose arms are open freely to give to all who, recognizing their need, will accept it from His hand. The Bible says, That we are all sinners. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no amount of effort. There is no amount of work that you can do to get yourself to heaven. There is no amount of righteousness, uh, personal righteousness, self-righteousness. There is no amount of knowledge that can get you to God. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death. That because you have sinned. You are separated from God and this is our natural state that we are separated from the life of God and because of that we deserve this doom. This doom is for those who have not been written in the book of life. This doom is for those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior but notice the call. Notice the call that's found in Revelation 22. The Spirit and the Bride, they say come. 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 And then John says, let all of you who hear, let all of you who know that this is true, let all of you who name the name of Christ say to others, come. And let him who is athirst come. We live in a world that is ravaged by sin. We live in a world of sorrow. We live in a world of of, of confusion. There are people, you know, the suicide rate. In the last 10 years among young people has gone up 70% statistically. We live in a world that is thirsting for meaning. That is thirsting for purpose. And the spirit and the bride they say come. And we go out into this world and we say come. And anyone that's a thirst can come. And whosoever will. It doesn't matter. Race. Creed. Color. It doesn't matter. Gender. Gender. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life, and they're free. Well, how do I take the waters of life? I'm thirsty. How do I take the waters of life? The Bible says that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You're separated from God. We're born separated from God. Our sin has separated us from God, but God in His love would not let you remain separated without a chance. And so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And the Bible says that as Jesus hung on that cross, certainly it was painful, certainly He bore scorn, certainly He bore pain, but the thing that, that He did on the cross that was most notable is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, that the Father took your sin and my sin and He punished Jesus Christ for our sin. He made Him to be sin for us. Why would He do such a thing? Well, because Jesus is the spotless Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb that was slain. Jesus is worthy because He had never once sinned and so he took your sin upon himself and paid for it, that he might then give you his righteousness. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot buy your way to heaven. You are dug into a pit that you cannot get yourself out of. Well, pastor, I'll just stop sinning today. It doesn't matter. You're already in the pit. You can't get out of the pit. You are already guilty. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin. Jesus died on the cross to save you from the judgment that is to come. Jesus died on the cross that he might give you the gift that will quench your thirst. But you know, if Jesus just died on the cross, it wouldn't have been enough. A dead Savior is no good to me. If I can go and find his bones somewhere and worship his bones or or, or worship at his bones, then he's no good to me. How can he give me eternal life if he's dead? But the Bible says he's not dead. The Bible says that three days after Jesus died upon the cross, that he rose again in victory over the grave, that he rose again in victory over death, that he claimed power over death, over sin, over hell. And because he has the power, he promises that whosoever will may have that power as well. Are you willing? Are you thirsty today? Have you ever come to the waters of life and drank of them freely? It's a free gift. It's for whosoever will. There's no conditions upon it. But you have to take of it. The Bible says it's a gift that must be taken. If I were to write your name in this Bible and I were to hold that Bible out to you and I were to say, this is for you. It's a gift. It's already paid for. There's no strings attached. And you look at this Bible and you go around and you tell everybody, Pastor Wickler has given me a Bible. He wrote my name in it. It's for me. And I can have it. And everyone says, well, where is it? And you look at them and you say, well, I never took it. Friend, if you never took it, it's not yours. If you didn't accept the gift, it might have your name in it. It might be purchased for you. It might be intended for you. But if you don't accept it, it is not yours. And as the call goes out to take of the waters of life freely, you have to take them or they're not yours. Jesus died to make provision. Jesus died to give you the opportunity. Jesus died to save you from your sins. But unless you receive the gift, it is not yours. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, this is what the book is about. The book is not a book of doom. It's a book of escape, and you can escape. The book is not a book that says you are, uh, you are hopeless and you are helpless. It is a book that says you are doomed if you don't flee to the only one who can help you. Would you flee to the cross today? Would you flee to Jesus Christ today? Would you there in your seat today with all of your heart acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life that you cannot get to heaven, that you cannot please God, that you cannot be free from your sin, that you cannot have eternal life without the finished work of Jesus Christ? Would you acknowledge that Jesus did the work for you, that you can't earn it, that you can't buy it, that baptism isn't going to get you there, that church attendance isn't going to get you there, that, 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 that communion is not going to get you there, but that only the blood of Christ can get you to heaven. And if you'll believe that with all of your heart, the Bible says, and whosoever will, let him take of the waters of life freely, you will have eternal life. And for we who are in the faith today, these final words are words of motivation to us. Notice what it said. The spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth Say, come. If you are one who has already heard the message, if you are one that already believes that this judgment is coming, if you are one that already recognizes that that judgment is on its way and that the unbelieving world will be judged, the call to you is to say, come. It is to go out into the unbelieving world and call others to come. It's motivation. There's a world that needs to hear of Jesus' love. There are men and women lost in darkness, ravaged by sin, confused, who need to know the Savior. But these are also, they're not just words of motivation. Remember that they are indeed as well words of hope. The darkness of this world hates you. Your flesh battles you every day. You're tired, you're weary, you're worn. Remember that there's coming a day of rest. Keep fighting the battle. Keep fighting the good fight. Rest is on the horizon, but rest is not for today. We fight. We war. We strive for the mastery. That we may hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so it is that we read the final two verses of the book as we close our time this morning. Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.